The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. This is one of the rarest sounds you'll hear in China. It's a protest. Just one man on an overpass across a main road. He sends up smoke signals to attract attention and unfurls two white banners with red letters. Remove traitor dictator Xi Jinping. Food, not PCR tests. Freedom, not lockdowns. Elections, not leaders. Beijing Bannerman is quickly detained. It's the most daring demonstration in years and at a very politically sensitive time. It's mid-October, three days before China's 20th Party Congress is due to start, and Beijing is feeling increasingly tense. The next day, extra police are posted in the city. Online, the hashtag, I saw it, starts trending. All references are quickly censored, and people who share pictures and videos of his protest are rounded up. But dissent starts cropping up across the country anyway. Graffiti in a public toilet reads, anti-dictatorship, anti-COVID test. Things are getting tense behind closed doors as well. Ever since I decided to leave Beijing a few days ago, weird things have been happening. As I was heading home from our bureau around midnight one evening, the office phone started ringing off the hook. A small plant I'd never seen before showed up in the office, and a different plant oddly disappeared from my flat. I was pretty spooked. But this has become par for the course for journalists in China. Over the years, as well as being assaulted, I've had my flat broken into by government minders, and my family in the U.S. has been harassed. I've prepared documents for the Telegraph and the U.S. government to keep on file, scrawled on them, to be used in the event of my arrest or detention in China. Asian heritage female journalists like myself are treated the worst because we're considered traitors. And, you know, we're women. Still, after 10 years here, I'm sad to leave. Because of the risks, I haven't said much to anyone, not even to friends. My biggest fear is that the government will ban me from leaving the country or detain me for years, held as a diplomatic hostage by the Chinese state. It's happened to others. It doesn't matter. I no longer feel safe here, so it makes sense to try to get out. I'm not the only one who's worried that China has reached a very scary tipping point. We consistently see that it's the Chinese government that poses the biggest long-term threat to our economic and national security. From Taiwan to the UK, the tentacles of Xi's regime now stretch everywhere. And that's exactly how he wants it. This is How to Become a Dictator with me, Sophia Yan. Step four, build a superpower. Before leaving Beijing, I wanted to do some last reporting for this podcast. And what better place to understand one of the driving forces behind China's rising superpower status than the National Military Museum? I decided to check out a new exhibition there. Immediately upon walking in, I'm greeted by an epic video. All about Xi. Like a strong country must have a strong military. There's a lot of this messaging here. There's 
so much on display of she. Every big picture is of she. Everywhere you turn, there's this big lit-up photo, pictures of him in uniform and, and him at a podium. I think my favorite picture in the whole exhibit is one of she in winter combat fatigues. He's got fur cuffs. He's wearing a big black fur hat, and he's standing in front of two microphones. I'm now in a big hall with lots of what look to be actual missiles, or replicas of them anyway. <laughs> There's one of the Dongfeng 2 missile, DF-2. We've got an armored truck on display. We have also 57 millimeter twin shipborne gun type 66. It doesn't take long for me to realize I'm being followed again. Anyway, I have two plainclothes police following me, one woman, one man. Okay, I've seen enough anyway. Xu's point in this exhibition is not subtle. He's commander-in-chief of the world's largest military, the People's Liberation Army. And his two million troops are essential in re-establishing China's place on the world stage. Here they are, singing about being a good warrior for President Xi. She has splashed an estimated 1.7 trillion pounds on defense over the last decade, making sure his men have all the latest bells and whistles. It's the biggest overhaul of the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, since Mao, and she has gone to great lengths to show it off. Under him, military parades have become supercharged. He went all out for his first one in 2015. 12,000 troops, 200 fighter jets, and a 1,000-piece band. She rode in a limousine with four microphones in front of him, inspecting the troops. It was all about showing off China's military, that it was as good as anyone else's, maybe even better. But it goes beyond parade pomp. He has prioritized two areas that could tip the scales in China's favor, nukes and the Navy. China used to say it only wanted enough firepower to get everyone else to back off. But now there are fears that China is racing to achieve parity with America, possibly even surpass the U.S. U.S. officials tonight closely monitoring China's missile program following a report of a possibly ominous missile test. Last year, U.S. officials said Beijing had tested a hypersonic missile capable of carrying nuclear weapons. The report says the missile circled the Earth before speeding toward its target, demonstrating an advanced capability in space that, quote, caught U.S. intelligence by surprise. But China brushed it off, saying it was just a routine spacecraft test. Either way, such a weapon could be game-changing. Same goes with China's maritime power. Since taking the reins, Xi has prioritized the PLA at sea. China now has the world's biggest navy. But a lot of experts argue it's about quality, not quantity. Particularly as the Chinese military has never really fought a proper war. In other words, it's... Big but untested. So it's got a huge number of capital ships and it is going through an, a very impressive build program. It's putting at sea every, roughly every four years the combined British and French navies. But what it hasn't done yet is test it. That's The Telegraph's associate defence editor, Dominic Nichols. 
I asked him to run me through the most noteworthy bits of kit Beijing has built and how it compares to other countries. So China has two aircraft carriers, the US has 11. 11 aircraft carriers, even if some of them are pretty old in the US fleet, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite big. Likewise, submarines, in terms of uh, subsurface ballistic nuclear, China's got six, the US have 14. So on the big ticket items, nothing to keep the US up at night. But there's something else. What's interesting is when you look at the number of destroyers and frigates and corvettes, so broadly, a destroyer looks to dominate an area and put a big bubble over the sea. So China's got 36 of those. The US have 68. There's probably 12 Chinese destroyers ready to go today, which is a big number. Frigates, now frigates traditionally look under the water, look at the subsurface. China got 45, US 21. Corvettes, these are smaller than frigates and these are more coastal patrol vessels. China's got 52 of those and the US have none. Dom says this is purposeful. Beijing wants to be prepared for a fight close to home, not out in the ocean. But there are other challenges. Corruption is an issue among senior ranks. Then there's the chain of command. As with many areas, Xi has centralized control in his hands. But if push came to shove, would they really put their lives on the line for him? And would everything boom on command? Not even Xi knows the answers to those questions. But at least on paper, China's arsenal is enormous. And its growing prowess allows Xi to use the military for his own political means. Right from the start, Xi made it clear that it's China's time to shine. The Chinese dream of achieving great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation is to achieve national prosperity, national revitalization, and people's happiness. He cast off the old Chinese approach, hide your might, bide your time. To understand why, you have to consider the insecurities and sense of injustice that underpins the Chinese state. The Chinese Communist Party is also driven by how to restore China's former historical grandeur. That's Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia. He speaks Mandarin and has met Xi many times as they both rose in government, which means he's one of the few foreigners in the world who has had a genuine chance to understand what makes the Chinese leader tick. When they first met in 1986, Xi was... Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed new vice mayor of one of China's special economic zones. But with time, he became... The highly intelligent interlocutor, someone who did not use a single note for all the multiple conversations we had at the time, and someone who had a pretty clear idea about where he wanted to take the country. Rudd describes Xi's perspective like this. His national ambition is to overcome what the Chinese communists see as their period of 100 years of uh, humiliation at the hands of the foreigners, the British, the French, the other so-called six colonial powers from Europe, as well as, of course, the searing memory of the Japanese invasion uh, from 1931 through until 1945. Those very much uh, animated his conversation back then. And I think by and large have uh, been reflected in what he's said and done since then. China's view is that its vast empire was fractured by foreign countries in what they call 
the Century of Humiliation. It ran from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s, and during that time, Britain took Hong Kong and Japan took Taiwan. The Opium Wars led to defeats and unfavorable treaties. Being invaded and colonized is a difficult past. But it's also politically useful. A powerful and emotive narrative to explain the downfall of China, once a leading civilization that gave the world paper and gunpowder. And for Xi to rally nationalism and justify a sharper China on the world stage. The Chinese people will never allow any foreign forces to bully, oppress, or subjugate us. Anyone who dares will have their heads bashed bloody against the Great Wall of Steel, forged by over 1.4 billion people. His plan to lead China's triumphant return as a major power is known as the Chinese Dream. And of course, there are songs about it. There are some positive sides to Xi's national rejuvenation project. Since he's been in power, China's economy has doubled in size to nearly 14 trillion pounds, second only to the U.S., she even claims to have completely eradicated poverty, at least when you slice and dice the numbers his way. He's invested heavily in science and technology. In outer space, China landed a rover on Mars in 2021 on its first try, making it the third nation ever to do so after the U.S. and the former Soviet Union. And Beijing is putting the finishing touches to its own space station. Then on land, it's all about green transport. China now dominates in electric vehicles. If you're riding an electric bus somewhere in the world, chances are it's Chinese-made. China has also laid more track for high-speed rail than any other nation. Nearly 25,000 miles. All this dovetails with Xi's Chinese dream. But there is a darker side to it, too. Xi wants China to be self-reliant in as many areas as possible. A smart move insulating the country so that it can't be squeezed by other governments. Because that's China's M.O. Using economic coercion to win diplomatic spats. And if anyone doesn't pay heed, Xi has that other card up his sleeve. Military might. There's one place that has borne the brunt of all these tactics lately more than any other a small island just a hundred miles away from China that she increasingly has his eye on. Taiwan. More on that after the break. My name's Louisa Wells. I'm head of podcasts at The Telegraph, which means it's basically my job to listen to shows like this one all day on work time. Pretty good gig if you ask me. But it also means I get to commission podcasts like How to Become a Dictator, Shows which shine a light on human rights issues and very real threats to democracy. And putting shows like this together takes a team of journalists. And that's where our subscribers come in. Without their support, we wouldn't have the funds to make journalism like this. So, to become one of them and to get unlimited access to all of The Telegraph's journalism, head to telegraph.co.uk slash dictator 
where you can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph online. That's telegraph.co.uk slash dictator, or click on the link in the show notes to this episode. What is China's bottom line, on the other hand, Mr. Ambassador? This is one China principle. What does that mean? Well, the meaning is very clear. There is only one China in the world. Both Taiwan and the mainland of China are part of China. And China's sovereignty and territorial integrity should not be violated. Okay. I think that message is loud and clear. China has long claimed the tropical island of Taiwan as its own. Like with everything involving China, it's a lot more complicated than that. Over the years, Taiwan was colonized by different powers. The Qing dynasty lost the territory to Japan during a war in the late 1800s, one of its losses during this century of humiliation. After World War II, Japan handed Taiwan to General Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang fled there after being defeated by Chairman Mao in the Civil War. And he set up a rival Chinese government, another one-party military dictatorship. Taiwanese called it white terror. My parents grew up with it. And that's partly why they eventually moved to New York, where I was born. Since the 1980s, however, Taiwan has changed a lot. It's now a peaceful, self-ruled democracy. It has its own elected president, military, currency, and borders. Yet Beijing has never given up its claim to Taiwan, going so far as to pressure nations to cut diplomatic ties. And Xi has repeatedly made clear he will take the island back by force if necessary. He is constantly uttering bombastic words about conquering Taiwan, firing up the nation around his idea of national rejuvenation. We must adhere to the One China Principle to advance the process of peaceful reunification of the motherland. All Chinese sons and daughters, including compatriots on both sides of the strait, must unite and move forward in unity, resolutely smash any Taiwan independence attempts and jointly create a bright future for national rejuvenation. This summer, Xi moved one step closer to making that a reality by staging the biggest ever war games over the Taiwan Strait. Fighter jets scrambling to take off. Beijing deployed dozens of warships and fighter jets around the island, saying it was testing its land strike and sea assault capabilities. The video shows live rockets being fired towards the Taiwan Straits. It was Xi's response to a visit by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. A moment because we have the plane door open. This is the uh, aircraft that's been carrying Nancy Pelosi. The highest level American official to touch down in Taiwan in a quarter of a century. In the dark. But this is the moment it looks like this visit uh, is taking off because up until now... Seen by China as a public slap in the face. The military drills hammered home the message. The days of Taiwan being allowed to peacefully coexist with the mainland, so long as it didn't poke the dragon, were over. A war no longer seems hypothetical. But the Taiwanese are staying put. They know just continuing to live in their thriving democracy is a form of resistance against Beijing. I'm at the port city of Keelung. It's about an hour's drive from the Taiwanese capital, Taipei, 
and I'm looking out towards the Taiwan Strait. That's my colleague, Nicola Smith. As the Telegraph's Asia correspondent, she reports regularly on Taiwan. And there's a lot of families who come here for an evening stroll. They come to take selfies. You can hear children laughing and playing in the background. And and old people are sitting on benches, relaxing, enjoying the breeze and looking out to sea. But just a few hundred metres from the promenade, I can see a couple of dark grey Taiwanese warships. And compared to the calm of the evening, it's a really jarring reminder of the threat that Taiwan faces from a Chinese invasion. She spoke to people strolling along the Keelung boardwalk to see whether they were scared. At the beginning, yes, we did afraid that what if China may send a missile. But, uh, you know, as a Taiwanese, we can't already get used to this kind of threat all the time. I believe most of Taiwanese, as you can see, they are still in the normal life. We are, we are peaceful people living here, so we don't want the war, of course. And I believe most of the people living in China, they don't want the war at all. But Russia's sudden invasion of Ukraine earlier this year has put the world on alert that the unthinkable really can happen. So many Taiwanese are preparing, just in case. That's the sound of ordinary citizens learning how to fire guns. Dressed in a mix of fatigues and jeans, they aim airsoft rifles at metal targets pinned to walls. Practice for urban warfare. Bookings for such courses have exploded since the Ukraine war. On the map, Taiwan is a mere speck compared to China. So why does this matter to Xi? It's about legitimacy. Before, the Chinese Communist Party used stellar growth to justify its continued rule. But the economy is struggling. So Xi has turned to the idea of taking over Taiwan to rally the nation. He's even put a deadline on it. We are, whether we like it or not, on a 27-year timeline at the moment. Kevin Rudd again. Xi Jinping says, We have to achieve China's national rejuvenation, Zhonghua Minzu Wei Da Fu Xing, by 2049. That's code language for China becoming the preeminent regional and global power. But he's also said that that can't be achieved in the absence of reunification with Taiwan. That doesn't mean that China's going to go to war uh, with the United States or with Taiwan tomorrow in order to regain Chinese sovereignty. But it does mean that the timetable for the Chinese military, the timetable for China's uh, diplomacy and economic preparedness for Taiwan is now gathering pace. My own analysis is that Xi Jinping does not want to move in that direction during the current decade, but that he would uh, seek to move in the 2030s when he still hopes to be in political office himself. The 2030s are not that far away. That's a troubling timeline, something I'll be getting into more in an upcoming bonus episode. It's not just Taiwan that China unilaterally claims as its own. Beijing also says that much of the East and South China Sea is its territory, regardless of international law. Why? Well, these are areas rich in natural resources, from oil to fishing stocks. They're highly strategic. Global shipping routes worth trillions of dollars run through here. And finally, it could make it easier to seize Taiwan, if it came to that. I caught up with my colleague Nicola to find out more about how she has asserted China's claims over the last decade. 
One of the major things it's doing is that it has deployed its Navy, its Coast Guard, its maritime militias, which are known as the Little Blue Men, who are named after the Little Green Men that President Putin sent to Crimea just before he annexed it in 2014. And these Little Blue Men are embedded into fishing fleets and they basically intimidate Southeast Asian nations who also have claims in the South China Sea. The other thing that China's doing is that it's building military facilities around the South China Sea, including on the disputed Spratly Islands, which are off the coast of Malaysia, Philippines and Vietnam. And the US said this year that three Chinese bases there are now fully militarized. And that means that they're equipped with missile systems, fighter jets. I think the South China Sea has been really interesting because it's one of the first places, maybe the first place in the world that really started to feel the impact of the influence of the rise of China. And that's why Australia got so involved. Yeah, that's right. Nobody knows what to do about it because the Philippines went to court about it, but it hasn't been able to enforce the ruling. And that that is the problem. China is basically just running roughshod o- over the area. I am United States military aircraft conducting lawful military activities outside national airspace. I am operating with due regard as required under international law. Other countries have tried to push back. The U.S. sends military ships on freedom of navigation expeditions to demonstrate to the Chinese that these are international waters. You are operating by military security Please go away quickly in order to avoid long judgment. But Beijing says this is illegal, a dangerous game that one day could lead to war. What China wants is to displace U.S. regional dominance in the Indo-Pacific, and is doing it further afield from its shores, too. Take the Solomon Islands, a remote archipelago country east of Australia in the middle of the ocean. You might never have heard of it, but China has. Earlier this year, the Solomons agreed a security pact with Beijing, and that took everyone by surprise. And that raised fears in, in capitals around the world that China could base naval ships just about 1,200 miles from the Australian coast. But China's reach stretches much closer to home. That's the sound of a pro-democracy protester from Hong Kong being beaten up by Chinese diplomats. At a demonstration, he was dragged by his hair and punched repeatedly by a group of masked men. He ended up with cuts and bruises and spent a night in the hospital. But this didn't happen in China. This happened in the UK, just a few weeks ago, at the Chinese consulate in Manchester. What we saw was wolf warrior diplomacy crossing a line. That's Alicia Kearns, MP and chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Wolf warrior diplomacy is Xi's way of dealing with the rest of the world. It's the exact opposite of what diplomacy normally means. It's aggressive and confrontational. Basically, the gloves are off. The hospitalization of someone who came to this country to seek refuge, to our shores, to escape the Chinese Communist Party, being beaten so severely, shows that there are no limits to what they are willing to do. We won't allow the Chinese Communist Party to have that long arm of its state to try and still intimidate you or let alone brutalize you. One Chinese diplomat involved said it was his duty to maintain China's dignity. 
Alicia says this is typical of how Beijing operates now, and the UK needs to take note. What we have not done, because we have focused on terrorists that behave like states rather than states behaving like terrorists, is we haven't built up the resilience within our system. And the reality is, whether we like it or not, we are in a form of warfare with China. We are not at war with China. It's very different to our relationship with Russia. But is it true that they are trying to undermine our multilaterals? Is it true that there is a significant amount of espionage taking place? Do I think they are willing to attack us, whether it comes from cyber, our cultural institutions, our educational institutions, our democracies? Yes, absolutely. In the UK alone, Chinese state influence can be found everywhere, yet it often goes unreported. They're not stories that, in the way that we would do sort of Russian attacks on Britain, which are sort of, if you like, super sexy and crop up and dominate the headlines. Rob Mendick is The Telegraph's chief reporter. But from time to time, Chinese stories of espionage, spying, infiltration crop up in the UK. But they're sort of, in a way, they're they're harder to grasp. They're, They're interesting stories because they're more subtle. The Chinese are in some ways harder to grasp. They're not always obviously illegal, wrong dodgy, dangerous, whatever word you want to call it. So you only have to think of things like universities collaborating with Chinese military universities. Well, on the face of it, that's just two universities carrying out research together. But on the other hand, what no one really knows is that information that is being gleaned in the UK and being taken back to China. Robert gives the example of Christine Lee, an Anglo-Chinese solicitor who built ties with MPs across the spectrum. That is, until MI5 issued an unprecedented alert accusing her of trying to interfere with British politics on the orders of Beijing. Now, I think there's plenty more like Christine Lee out there. They may not be as obvious as Christine Lee. It feels like it's it's a concerted effort. There are thousands of Chinese spies looking at the UK all the time. This sort of interference abroad by China has grown exponentially under Xi. There are dozens of other examples I could give. The Belt and Road Initiative, for instance, Yilu in Chinese. It involved Beijing offering billions in development loans to other countries, apparently with no strings attached. As this propaganda song explains, for China, the goal was to have more friends, more fun, and more money. But it turned out there were strings attached. When countries couldn't afford to repay the loans, some had to halt projects midway, while others were forced to relinquish control of key state assets. The threats against Taiwan, the Little Blue Men, the Wolf Warrior diplomacy, the development loans? This is what a superpower China looks like. Backed by military might, Xi now has the clout to challenge the U.S. And that's what he wants, to shape a new world order. East versus West. This new world would see a China-led rise of authoritarian regimes rather than a U.S.-led liberal world order governed by international laws. Xi's close ties with Russian President Vladimir Putin are a clear example of this. Their bromance has been tested by the Ukraine war. The fact that it's not going Russia's way is a headache for Beijing. 
But she likely still believes that this is a special moment, a tipping point that will ultimately lead to the East rising as the West declines. So he's sticking to his hardline stance. Just as it's becoming more noticeable abroad, it's also becoming more obvious inside China, too. And that's why I need to leave. Just walking through our bureau. Just trying to tidy up a little bit. Back in Beijing, I'm getting ready to leave. Strange to know that I won't be here for a while. I really love this little bureau. This has been a whirlwind few weeks. I stayed in my flat just long enough to finish a two-liter carton of milk. So really not long at all. Oh, my phone is just ringing off the hook today. So many errands. (laughs) So many things to get done. I'm not sure when I'll next be back in Beijing, so I want to leave the telegraph bureau looking spick and span. Let me give you a quick tour. Okay, so this is the main room, main newsroom of our tiny bureau. We've got a stack of old Daily Telegraph newspapers. We've got lots of plants in the office, paper shredder, and some photos from Xinjiang. You know, one quirk of our bureau is that we have a fax machine. This is something that we all joke about here in the press court in China, so to request comment from the Foreign Ministry of China, we have to send a fax. They don't accept it any other way, which is really sort of funny when you think about it. I spend way longer than I should, faffing around and procrastinating. I need to leave. I actually do need to leave. I have so many other things to get done today. All right. After I've finished at the office, then I just need to be allowed out of the country. And that means one last COVID test and one last night hoping my health coat stays green. Otherwise, I can't get in a taxi for the airport, let alone enter the airport itself. Okay. In the end, everything is fine until I reach the airline check-in. For some reason, this health declaration form I need to submit is just not letting me submit it. But the airline... Airline at the check-in counter said to just go through security and then ask when I'm at the border for the customs and immigration folks to see if they can help me figure out why there's stuff here that won't let me submit it. It seems like I filled everything out. It takes several hours, but eventually I'm given the all-clear. I'm finally through. They stamped... I have an exit stamp in my passport. Um, But I should open a board in not that long from now, actually. Even as we're led onto the tarmac, I still can't shake the feeling that something is about to go wrong. There's a police car. There's a guy inside, and I think he's... Maybe I'm just paranoid, but I think he's just looking at me. But no one approaches me, and no one who looks like a minder follows me onto the plane. Even the flight attendant seems smiley and normal. I just sat down into my seat. Whew. What a crazy couple of days, couple of weeks. This is not how I thought things would end up. The thing I realized in doing all of this and doing this pod thing that I and my editors all realize doing this is that we we don't really know where the red lines are anymore. 
As the plane takes off, it hits me. It's over. I really am safe. But after everything that's happened, it's hard to believe. My mind is running all over the place. I'm honestly so exhausted. There's no telling how things are going to change over the next 10 years. This is not the country that I came into in 2012. China has changed in ways that nobody could have predicted. You know, it is frankly very crazy that a country this powerful, of this size, of this influence, that we really know actually very little about it. And we know even less about the guy in charge. Because for all the work that I've done here for 10 years, for all the work my amazing fellow journalists among the China press corps, there's still a lot we just don't know. And we don't know because China blocks access. So I really wonder, what are we missing? Maybe it'll be like when the wall fell. Maybe someday there will be a moment like that for China. And maybe then I and the rest of the world will have a chance to know. My hopes aren't high that change will happen anytime soon. After I left, the big party Congress finished and Xi got his historic third term. And that's not all. He ejected his predecessor, Hu Jintao, from the stage in front of a carefully selected coterie of press. Nobody knows why. But it was humiliating and very symbolic. The new guard literally ushering out the old guard. He also stuffed the elite Politburo Standing Committee with loyalists, getting rid of any possible rivals. That means no potential successor and no threat to his reign. He's finally done it. Dictator Xi Jinping. We put all the allegations across all episodes of this podcast to Chinese officials. Their response was to refer us to a single speech given by Xi at the opening ceremony of the 20th Party Congress. In it, Xi reiterated China continuing under the umbrella of Xi Jinping thought and socialism with Chinese characteristics. Again, he rejected the notion of Taiwan independence and stressed the need to build a world-class military. In all, his two-hour remarks were heavy on ideology and light on actual policy direction. You've been listening to How to Become a Dictator with me, Sophia Yan, China correspondent for The Telegraph. And yes, I'll still be reporting on China, just from afar, for now. Next week, we'll be doing a live Twitter spaces to explore what next for Xi's China. What are the challenges he faces in the next 10 years? How long can he hold on? Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to find out more. And for those of you who can't listen live, we'll also put that discussion on this podcast feed. This series has been reported by me, with additional research by Jenny Pan. The producers are Venetia Rainey and Yulaine Gofan. Sound design is by Giles Gear, with original music by Elliot Lampett. The executive producer is Louisa Wells, and the commissioning editor is Louis Emanuel.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.